welcome Keith Woods. It's good to finally get you on. It's good to be here. Yep. So you make videos while being Irish, as I say, and I came across you recently just starting to get into some of your videos. You know, people have always loved the Irish. You have the the accent, the beer, the, the mythology, the country's landscape. I think it's a culture that most people know and there's a lot to like, right? And of course, America has a massive Irish population. That's why we celebrate St. Patrick's Day. So how Irish, I want to know, would you say you are? Do you dive into ancient, you know, Celtic culture? Do you speak Gaelic and all that cool stuff? How Irish are you? Um, well, I'm, uh, I'm 82.8% Irish. <laughs> <laughs> According to my, uh, my uh, ancestry results, the rest is Anglo. Oh, so, really? Uh, yeah, that was a bit of a black pill, to be honest. But, uh... Oh, no. So so what happened when you got the, the results? Did your heart sink? Well, you know, there was none of the bad ones. I mean, you know, it's not the worst, you know, English and Irish. I'll take that, you know. Plus now, you know, the the Anglosphere will accept me in as well, which is which is a nice way to get my foot in the door. But <laughs> yeah, no, I don't uh, I don't speak Irish. Most people I know don't speak Irish except for uh, Irish has kind of basically been confined to uh, s smaller, sort of sparsely populated parts of Ireland, mostly like the, the West Coast or uh, the Northwest, Donegal, uh, Gwaeltux, they call them Irish-speaking regions. But uh, yeah, the, the language is really on the decline, but it never it never really became, you know, the dream was for it to become the, the was it for, to replace English, but it never really happened. Um, and, you know, one of the big things was, you know, the people that started the revolution in the early 20th century, it actually, it's interesting how it started. I mean, the, before the, you know, the violent revolution of 1916, it basically came out of a language movement. Uh, people like Douglas Hyde and these people that wanted to revive uh, unique Irish culture. And it started with things like the, the Gaelic League, which wanted to bring back the Irish language and then Gaelic Athletic Association and started, uh, you know, creating their own sports and stuff. Um, and it was, it was the cultural revolution that created the violent revolution. But the problem really, uh, you know, I'm sure what a lot of what we'll be talking about tonight, the problem really stems from the fact that after the revolution, we really lost the, the best revolutionaries, the, the idealistic nationalists in, in the war. And we're basically left with conservative reactionaries. And that's kind of how the country has been run since. So, uh, you know, while on paper we got our, our independence and stuff, uh, most nationalists would feel that, we, you know, we never really we never really got that victory. And. Uh, the ideals of of people like Porrick Pierce and James Connolly and these people from 1916 have never really been realized. Uh, we've kind of just changed masters. Well, here we are. <laughs> we have a lot to talk about because Ireland is unfortunately going down the toilet. So I first want to know, where are you on the political spectrum of things for people who haven't seen your channel before? Where would you put yourself? Uh... I'd say, you know, identitarian or nationalist. I mean, a lot of times these things mean different things, different people. I might say something like a, a social nationalist or a, a national socialist, something along those lines. Yeah, that, that's what I <laughs> that's what I gathered right away. Exactly. Because I know there's different types of nationalists. I think in mm. Europe, they're not afraid of socialism because they've had socialism for so long, whereas a lot of there's a lot of nationalists. Well, identitarians in America, not so much. But there are there's a nationalist scene in America. They hear the word socialism and they, they shriek, you know, <laughs> but mm -hmm. I, I, there, there can be a good version of it. Of course, we don't have that right now. But Ireland is a country that I've been 
been to several times. I always love the Irish. A couple of my best girlfriends happen to be Irish. I've been there several times. And I remember the last time, oh, geez, I don't know. It was probably over five years ago. I was there for St. Patrick's Day. Yes, I know, St. Patrick's Day. But I couldn't believe how many non-Irish people were there. Now, you're pretty young. Tell us what, what you've seen growing up in Ireland and how much it's changed. Yeah, I mean, yeah, even though I'm quite young, I've actually noticed a, a massive difference even in my, my own life. I mean, the town, you know, the town I grew up in when I was younger was just overwhelmingly, I mean, there was maybe a handful of non-Irish people and everyone knew their names. And, uh, you know, literally in the last decade now, you go back and it's full of, like, uh, you know, not just European migrants either, but there's, you know, the town I'm from without giving too much away, there's like just many uh, Roma gypsies living there. And not only are they living there, but they're being provided housing by uh, the local councillor at a time when we have officially 10,000 homeless people in Ireland and there's a housing crisis. But uh, immigration is not a topic that's on the table. It's not a topic to be discussed. And so in all these, you know, the big issues is, you know, we have wealth, but the, the problem, we have a, a housing crisis. We have a problem with our healthcare system, which is in large part due to overcrowding, you know, uh, lack of beds in public hospitals. And immigration is a huge factor in all of these things. But you know, at least in the UK, you can actually talk about immigration. I mean, I'm not a fan of Nigel Farage, but maybe the, you know, the one impact of, of the whole Brexit debate and the, the introduction of UKIP into sort of mainstream UK politics is that uh, immigration is a topic that can be discussed. I mean, you even have people like David Cameron and Ed Miliband were apologizing for the, the previous amounts of mass immigration. But that's not at all the case in Ireland. If you, I mean, you can't bring it up in good company. If you, if you brought, if you were to, if you were to bring that up on a, a you know, a popular uh, news time discussion here or something, you, you wouldn't be invited back on. So, but in you, private, in private, do you think a lot of people talk about these things? Because I have a lot of Irish friends, and they they talk about. It. I'm sure they talk about it at the pub, you know, under the radar. Yeah, I mean, yeah, most Irish people are. are pretty based like the I definitely the PC thing definitely hasn't hasn't quite worked yet but I mean all this has happened so fast like you have to think in 1992 homosexuality was still illegal in this country and a few years ago it was the first country to vote to legalize gay marriage in a referendum so the changes have been so sweeping they've come so fast and, uh, you know, I do feel in a lot of ways Ireland is kind of a, a test case for the globalists because, uh, you know, as you say, it does have this rich history and rich tradition and everyone is is familiar with that. And uh, it is a small country. And I do feel like this would be a, a great prize for the globalists if in basically one generation they could completely reorient that traditional society into the the centerpiece of, of globalism, which is what it is becoming. But yeah, the older generation definitely don't care about this stuff. But at the same time, um, you know, my generation has has is really swallowing it up wholesale, you know, and the, the indoctrination is really working well. And I do think a big part of that is, um, you know, it's different in the US because in the US now you have a case where uh, this generation is, is worse off than their parents, which is quite a thing. And that leads to all kinds of social effects. But in Ireland, you know, there are people now putting their kids through college whose kids are going and getting pretty decent jobs that weren't finishing high school 30 years ago. So people, 
people do witness the the big economic changes and i think because of that they're willing to tolerate more of the pause that they, they otherwise wouldn't be Ugh, yeah but there's also a lot of really poor people i know as people are mm. documenting there as a, a lot of these so-called refugees and migrants are coming in and getting all the stuff in ireland there's a lot of struggling irish people like there's a lot of poverty still there right oh yeah absolutely i mean you know, Ireland is, is like a typical sort of modern neoliberal economy. Like there was a, I saw something the other day, there's a, a recent economic test done in Ireland is like per capita, the second most productive economy in the world. But I mean, that doesn't translate at all on the ground. Uh, the thing is, there's an awareness, you know, we hear so much about how strong the economy is and whatnot, and people, it does breed a fear into people because there is that fear of, you know, going back to the, the dark ages when everyone was supposedly so poor and miserable. Uh, but we have this great economy on paper, you know, booming GDP growth, and we've got Google and PayPal and all these uh, platform capitalism companies in the, the center of Dublin. Uh, all these multinationals, you know, pharmaceutical companies, whatnot, but it is all on paper. I mean, I think 90 plus percent of Google's employees in Ireland are non-Irish. Uh, most of these companies don't actually pay tax to the state. I mean, you know, if you want an example of how ridiculous this scenario gets, the European Commission uh, ruled that Apple hadn't paid us 13 billion uh, euros in tax that they just avoided and ruled that they had to pay it to us and all of the establishment parties are actually fighting that and appealing it they don't want the 13 billion they, they'd rather yeah they'd That's rather outrageous. you know outrageous. yeah the, ex, the excuse is like oh you know we have to uphold our, our uh, international reputation but i mean it's it's Trying oh to uphold gosh. our position as a, a tax haven. I mean, that's absolutely, I mean, what you could do with 13 billion in a, a country of, exactly. of four and a half million people. Exactly. Now, but like, yeah, I mean, even if, even with the, you know, there's high employment and everything else, but you know, you're, you're showing images of Dublin there. Like Dublin is, Dublin has the third highest rents of any city in the world. Yeah, it's expensive. And yeah, and it, it, one of the, one of the consequences as well of the, of the bank bailout in 2008 is, we have one of the highest levels of, of debt. If you add public and private debt, we're one of the most indebted countries in the world. Uh, and the other thing is that one of the effects of this was that uh, in response to, you know, the bad lending by banks is that uh, to get a, a mortgage on a house now, you need like a 15% deposit in cash. So, you know, a huge amount of people have just been completely squeezed out of the, even the potential of ever owning a house. So what you get now is just basically everyone finishes school and goes to college and does whatever liberal arts degree and goes and works <laughs> for one of these global homo corporations for 20 25,000 a year and you know spends huge amounts on rent in dublin in multicultural city and doesn't have a, a prospect of of owning a home unless they're unless they have wealthy parents to put down a deposit so uh the economy isn't at all what it seems on paper. And as I said, at the same time, there's a, a huge housing crisis, which is in large part caused by immigration. That's right. Now, I want to get to the root of uh, Ireland. As you said, it's generally been very conservative. I remember that as well, just the way people are. They're pretty based, if you will. So how where did that tr transition, you think, happen into this liberal kind of open borders, Marxist country that it's becoming? Um. Well, I guess you could you could maybe trace it to the 70s when Ireland joined the European uh, economic community. But 
more so in the 1990s. In the 1990s, there was a clear move towards this neoliberal development strategy where we'd become basically a, a tax a tax haven for multinational corporations. One of the one of the things about Ireland, it's it's a consequence of the civil wars. We never had we never had a, a leftist party. We never had a, a strong. We never politics was never ideological. The two parties, I mean, up until the 80s and 90s, they were getting between 80 and 85 percent of the vote. Uh, Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil basically don't have any fundamental differences ideologically. Uh, they've always been kind of wherever the the majority were on social issues. You know, they've always been sort of conservative, centre right, um, and that had its own that had its own consequences because because there was such a you know the two parties hate each other because they came out of opposite sides of a civil war and it really lended itself to sort of auction politics and sort of rule by i guess bureaucrats or technocrats where you know there was all these kind of meaningless disputes between these parties and at the same time who was really deciding our fate were were civil servants and economists and there was a there was a conscious move in the 90s to uh have a developmental strategy that was completely reliant on on attracting finance capital and so corporation tax was lowered f over the course of a few years from 40 percent to 12 and a half percent and uh, you know that coincided with uh, an investment in education there was an educated workforce at the same time you know we we're part of the the eu so it became the ideal place for these uh, big tech companies like google and facebook to establish themselves and other multinational companies, you know, Pfizer, Intel, these kinds of companies. And so uh, pretty much all of our economic growth has come from uh, making ourselves subservient to finance capitalism. And at the same time, we've sort of given up on any industrial development or any economy aside from that. And that definitely has social effects. You know, when you're completely reliant basically on globalism and on neoliberalism, it really it really ties your hands in a lot of way and it really changes the the course of of certain of certain conversations oh definitely now you just had an election uh it's a little disappointing tell us what happened because basically a bunch of marxists keep winning yeah Sinn Féin are they're an interesting case i mean that's the two parties there Fianna Fáil Fine Gael so they're the two center-right parties that have sort of had a, a monopoly on power since the foundation of the state but uh, Fianna Fáil lost a lot of support in 2008 because, uh, you know, the result of this massive economic growth and speculation and switch to uh, finance capitalism and a property bubble was a complete collapse. And while we did benefit enormously from the EU in terms of uh, capital spending by the EU on our you know, roads and rail and infrastructure and such and on their investment in agriculture, uh, we actually we put more back into the EU in one night than we received in 30 years in 2009 because we bailed out. We guaranteed uh, our banks here that had 65 billion euros worth of uh, private banking debt. And that was at the orders of the, the ECB. And if you look at some of the private bondholders that were guaranteed, uh, you know, it's it's these these private equity firms like uh, there's a Rothschild private equity firm. It's all these, you know, again, massive finance capitalists that invested in these in these bad banks that were tied up to the Irish property bubble. Uh, so the Irish people ended up bailing out these Swiss and German banks. It was done at the behest of the ECB to maintain the stability of the euro. So 
uh, that was a pivotal point in history. That kind of, but that was the moment that cost the the monopoly of power of these two parties because it basically ended Fianna Fáil for a few years and then Fine Gael came into government, and you know they might have been popular, but while they were recovering the economy again, they had a a development strategy in terms of getting out of recession that was completely reliant on just basically moving further into neoliberalism, and that brought with it all these social crises like you know, the crisis in the health service and housing, etc. So there was going to be a big popular shift in this election. And it happened to go to Sinn Féin, which if you know the history of Sinn Féin is itself quite radical, because I mean, uh, it's not too long ago, 30, 40 years ago, leaders of Sinn Féin were executing people in Barnes in the north of Ireland. That's mm, not an exaggerating yeah. party leader. But Sinn Féin, Sinn Féin have capitalised on populist sentiments and they've actually capitalised on nationalist sentiments. There's still this perception among a lot of people in Ireland that Sinn Féin are a nationalist party. And now part of that is that immigration isn't discussed. So no one really knows anyone's policy on immigration because, you know, I watched three debates before this election and immigration wasn't mentioned once. So there's a, a perception, you know, Sinn Féin are the IRA party. So there's a perception that Sinn Féin are hardcore Irish nationalists that are going to stick it to the establishment. I mean, you have to think how uneducated the average voter is. And I heard a lot of people my age were voting for Sinn Féin. And it was that sentiment of, well, these people will stand up for the Irish. And, you know, you know what that means when you hear it. Mm -hmm. But... Obviously, now with them in government, uh, people are going to realise that it's a very different story. But yeah, basically, they've they've sort of sublimated nationalist sentiment into, uh, yeah, borderline Marxist uh, policies. And they're all on board with all the LGBT stuff. And, you know, they basically just want kind of a, a softer neoliberalism with uh, more wealth redistribution. But nothing fundamental will change. Ugh. Now, why is it so controversial to just say Ireland for the Irish? <laughs> What's the big deal? I mean, what does your average person do when they hear that? Yeah, I, know. I wish I knew why that was so <laughs> controversial. I mean, but this is the thing as well, is that Sinn Féin are, you know, the party of, of, of Bobby Sands and of these people that just as recent as the 1980s were, uh, fighting the British in the north and going on hunger strike. And if if you read any of these people, even they're explicitly ethno-nationalist. You know, Bobby Sands has quotes that are effectively Ireland for the Irish and that are effectively, you know, I'm fighting explicitly to have a, a country for the Irish people. Um, and the fact that people are, are trying to to wash over that now is is insane. I mean, it's so it's so deeply written into our history. So. You do see them now trying to, to change the historical narrative. I mean, you know, it's always been conceived of that our, our war of independence was a national struggle for uh, the Irish people. But now they're trying to even sort of internationalize that and that anymore it's not about Irish people versus uh, British Empire. Now it's about oppressor versus oppressed. And it was this kind of, you know, now it's this kind of universal struggle. And he, he even see when they talk about the north of Ireland, and the conflict there, because it happened in the 1960s and such, they always try and compare it to uh, the civil rights struggle in, in the US in the 60s. That, oh, the, you know, the nationalists in, in the North were basically 
you know, they were like the blacks in the south and they were denied equal rights. And so that was the source of this conflict. But in every historical narrative of the establishment, there's there's always one lesson. And the lesson is always that ethnocentrism is the worst sin imaginable and is going to lead to a Holocaust. Or That's right. Yep. Civil and, war in our case. And they can't push the whole slavery argument on you guys. I mean, most of us know that there is more Irish slaves that were shipped to America than African slaves, right? They can't push the colonialism line like they do to so many other countries, right? Well, they can't, you know, they can't push that on Sweden either, but look at what's happening. They guilt the people anyway. But you guys don't hear that, right? You don't hear about any of your true history of uh, slavery or the, all the horrible things that the Irish people have gone through and the ways that you've been oppressed, right? You don't hear that stuff yeah but it's funny how you know for every country there's a, a different narrative that sort of suits the people there so for us it's not about white privilege or well to an extent it is now in the last few years but for, for the most part the narrative they go with is that uh well you know we were immigrants and uh <laughs> you know we went to we went to all these places you know we went to the united states or we went to australia not mentioned that uh, we went there on prison ships, uh, <laughs> yeah. or you know, in the Oops. case of the U.S., that it was a, you know, effectively a white ethno state, and that there was uh, there was obviously integration there. Uh, but yeah, the narrative is that you know us migrating to the U.S. 200 years ago is identical to the immigration that's going on now, and that because we have ancestors that immigrated to the United States, we have a responsibility to take infinity Africans. So, you know, the, it, but it just shows how, how that these narratives don't mean anything to them because, you know, they'll say they'll say one thing to defend the case to a British person. They'll say it's because you had empire and then they'll say to an Irish person, it's because you didn't have empire. It's because you were part of an empire. That's why you have to, to take these migrants. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, it's. It's just so shallow and so cynical, but unfortunately it, it does. It does. It does get a lot of people. I want to play a triggering uh, clip by, doesn't sound very Irish, her name, Salome Mba Unga Ua, a commission member, uh, and she's talking about how diversity is at the core of I what it means I think to that's be Irish. I think that's, I think that's a Connemara surname. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> let's, play, let's play the clip, though, because it's hilarious. Ireland has always been a diverse society, linguistically, ethnically, and religiously. We still continue to be so. Diversity is at the core of what it means to be Irish. We hope that this hearing will assist us, the state and civil society, to see a path forward to addressing the challenge we face in combating racism and discrimination. So what do you think about that? Diversity is at the core of what it means to be Irish, says this uh, lady from Africa in Ireland. Yeah, just looking at her, I, I think she might be from County Kerry by, by her accent and her, her complexion. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> but I mean, you, but you see these people, the thing about these people is I, I see them on Twitter and I actually see them on television here a lot. There's like there's three or four of them, these these uh, strong African women, and they all they all have uh, they all have educational backgrounds. That's like M.A. in equality studies or M.A. in uh, anti-whiteness or whatever uh, but they all they all get invited on television the whole time like there's one of them Ibn Joseph and she's like she's on TV like pretty much once a week on one of the, the main uh, political talk shows and it's like she just gets like five minutes at the end of every show to <laughs> berate Irish people and no one ever challenges her and it's like who does she represent like 
you know, if if we're meant to have a fair political discussion, I mean, you know, you'll never see a, a nationalist get a word in. And it's like, if you look at the, the organic audiences, I mean, look at something like YouTube or Twitter and the, the, the prominent, the prominent political voices in Ireland are nationalist voices. But then, you know, when it's mainstream TV, it's all these these people that get by on on fake credentials, uh, MA and equality studies, and, and they're allowed to go on TV and peddle this message that no one wants to hear. It's amazing. And no one stands up to her. No one says, is diversity at the core of being African or how about Jewish or Arab or any other people, right? This is only used to European ethnicities. I see this kind of stuff in the UK, too, all the time, you know. Well, what, what does it mean in England? What does it mean to be English? Anyone could be English. Now you're getting that too. Well, anyone could be Irish. You know. Well, can I go down to Africa and just be African? That I, I'm, a, I am the diversity that's at the core of what it means to be African now. You know. I mean, aren't most Irish people inside? Aren't they livid when they hear something like this? Because I mean, I get livid, and I'm not even Irish. I mean, yeah, you would think so. But then, you know, I look at the the last election result and the nationalists got under 1% everywhere they ran. And I I, I do wonder, like, what, what is it going to take, you know? Uh, because, you know, for all for all the Irish have suffered in the past, you know, under Cromwell and the famine and all these things, there was always there was always a way back in that, you know, we were still we we're still the people occupying the land. But, you know, there's there's no way back from this. And this, you know, in 30, 40 years of this, it could do it could do more damage than any of those things, because, you know, you can you can come back from from a famine, you can come back from those things. But if you become a minority in your own country, you know, what's what's the way out of that then, except something, you know, something very extreme. But I mean, I guess it's it's the problem for white people ever. You know, what is it going to take for for white people to wake up to this? It's I, I just find it incredible sometimes what they can tolerate. You know, I look back at when sort of before I was red pill and the, that I was able to sort of tolerate this stuff and think it was normal. But I don't know when you've yeah when you go to the other side and and you look at it, you're like, what will it take? Yep. I know. Well, I, we always have to remember that at one point we were completely unaware of these things and we were suckered in by a lot of these messages. And then we looked back, you know, once our eyes were open, we're like, I can't believe I, I didn't see that before. You know, that's why it is important to have all these voices and people out there. And that's why precisely why they don't want these nationalists to speak in Ireland, because it will resound with a lot of people. They'll hear the truth and they'll, you know, it will uh, enlighten them and change them. And that will create a true revolution. And that's exactly what they fear. Uh, speaking of immigration, there's another person here, Jamie Drummond. I wanted to play a clip. He's from the, uh, he's a one co-founder, and that's Bono's NGO project. Oh my god, it's just ridiculous. Anyway, they're talking about how the, his main aim. Their main aim is to facilitate mass immigration, specifically from Africa, and this will go into Ireland, of course, all of Europe. But let's just play the clip. In educating every younger person on the importance of these issues, just as the envelope that, uh, that, that Sean Barrett mentioned. Yes. And so um, I think something like that would be a very good idea, not just to justify the aid program, no. but to get people to think about the other uh, differently. Because as Africa's population doubles, a lot of them, whatever the circumstances, will be coming to Europe. As economic migrants or as refugees, they will be coming, many of them. And that is a good thing if they come in to a place that is, has an open mind um, and whose economies are doing well, um, because we will be senile. We'll be senescent demographically. 
we will need their useful energy to do stuff. Um, so it, that's just what the economic statistics tell you, the demographic data demands, you know, and demography's destiny. Europe and Africa are going to have a very close 21st century. Um, the question is what kind of closeness will it be? And these kinds of investments through the aid program, but also into people's minds and ideas about, you know, who we are, and, 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 and less, gives less sucker to the xenophobes and the populists who will, who, will, who will otherwise do very well in the political climate over the next couple yes. of decades if we they, don't get this right. They know. They, they know. All these leftists, these globalists know that demographics is where it's at. So just bring them on into Ireland as fast as possible and just tell them that, you know, it's a good thing and you need Africa's exploding population because you're going to just somehow be senile and decrepit. And <laughs> even though you built this great civilization, somehow it's all just going to fall apart, you know, unless you let I in love, I loved, I loved the language and their youthful the, energy. <laughs> the youthful energy. Yeah, that's what I as well. Like the, the youthful energy of like stealing bikes and... <sighs> God. Mugging people. <laughs> and then he even but says later, we need them. But then he's like, but we have to give them aid to be able to facilitate this. <laughs> like they yeah, can't we give them aid. And in exchange, they'll give us aid. Yeah, exactly. Took the words but out I of love the, But the thing about the <laughs> language surrounding this stuff always with demographics is that this is just, it's just inevitable. It's just natural. It's just some natural process. Like, we're going to be old and we're not going to have young people to pay our pensions. So why is that? It's like this isn't something that just like, you know, the weather changes and oh, the demographics change and how no one's having any children. It's like that's a political choice. You know, whatever structures are in place that are creating that can be changed because those are obviously new structures. It's never been a problem before where the population halved in a, in a generation because everyone stopped having kids. You know, there's clearly antenatal policies at work here and there's clearly something that could be done about it. But. You know, this is this is where the the propaganda really comes into play, where it, these things are seen as just a, an inevitable historical process, and that's always where the brainwashing comes in as well. Like, you know, I was reading an article today. For, the, the BBC had something up. It was like dispelling five racist myths, and one of them was that England has always been populated by English people. Uh, it started talking about how you know the the Normans invaded, and it's like you know just how can anyone buy this stuff? But yeah, I mean, you you listen to him there and yeah, it's all just so inevitable. You know, everyone's going to stop having kids. We're not going to be able to afford the pensions. Africa's population is going to double. You know, that's another inevitable thing. You know, constant discussion about climate change and the environment and how we're constantly told, you know, this is all political choice. You know, these, this isn't an inevitable natural process. This is our fault. This is the result of, of things we're doing and we can change this politically. Uh, but then, oh, Africa's population is doubling, but there's nothing we can do about that. That's nothing to do with politics. That's nothing to do with us uh, unnaturally giving aid to and, and propping up uh, a people that uh, haven't evolved to live under those conditions. That's just another natural process. You know, it's just written into nature that in the, the 21st century, you know, uh, white people are going to stop having kids and uh, Africa's population is going to start ballooning into billions and billions. But I mean, you know, it's so sinister and, you know, these same people, you know, Bono and these people will be the same people talking about about climate change and carbon taxes. And at the same time, you know, they're, they're, they're gleefully celebrating that there's going to be another billion Africans in the next 40 years. Well, Bono sure doesn't I mean, live with them. You were just telling me about his helicopter and he's got his castles and like he's not going to be living with them, right? Yeah, Bono, Bono is quite fond of uh, of of holiday and in, in, in Virgin. 
very uh, very Irish parts of Ireland, you know, places where you won't see anything but old Irish people. It is it is interesting where these people choose uh, to spend to spend their time, you know, and for all their luxuries and for all his wealth. The place that he decides to go is, you know, uh, rural cottages in in rural Ireland, surrounded by old Irish people. You know, yeah, the, the exactly. same, the same, the same backward culture he wants to destroy so badly. But that's that's one thing. If even if there's a division on immigration, one thing you'll find every Irish person agrees on is hate and Bono. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's funny. But I always wonder, too, like this prick he was just talking, does he really think it's going to be some big kumbaya fest if he just brings in the entire third world into Ireland? Like, is this going to be just love and peace and just prosperity like Ireland has never seen before? I mean, does he really believe that, though? You know? Because it seemed like more he's like, I want to stick it to those xenophobes and I'll be hiding here in my gated community. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no, I definitely, I definitely think a big part with these people is, is just a sort of revolutionary spirit and, and sticking it to their political enemies. But I mean, you know, that's the thing as well. It's like the, the discussion about this is always like, it's going to be difficult. And you know, this has never worked anywhere. We've tried it before, but we can make it work if we try here. And it's like, you know, it wouldn't the easier thing just be to not attempt it. You know, if these people are going to attempt so much, uh, uh, are going to undergo so much racism and everything, you know, wouldn't the easiest thing just be to uh, to separate because, you know, white people are so racist and, you know, at least until we sort our racism out, wouldn't the easiest thing just be to not subject these people to it? Exactly. Absolutely. Makes perfect sense. Like this story, let's pull up that you sent to me. Actually, anti-racist campaigner Doctor Doctor Eben Joseph <laughs> Corey's racist motives as hotel serves her the wrong drink. I guess she ordered wine and they gave her a black currant drink. Now this woman doesn't know that this is a fruit, right? I, I guess not. She thinks it's something personal about. It's all about skin color here. You know, it's it's absurd. And then she called it racist, and the hotel was apologizing and everything. What do you think about this? I mean, this this is another thing. I mean, if you follow this woman's Twitter, I mean, first of all, okay, she's a doctor, she's a PhD, but like when I look at her Twitter, like there's like she can't spell a, a, a tweet right. There's like constant grammar mistakes and stuff. So, but supposedly she got her PhD in an Irish university. So, <laughs> I, I I'd like to see what goes like how these things happen. You know, there's so many of these supposed academics that have just popped up in the last few years that are borderline illiterate and clearly low IQ. But I mean, this like these people, they're just, you know, she is obsessed with with race and with finding racism. And again, it gets back to this thing, you know, maybe like maybe Dr. Eben, you know, you'd just be happier to go back to Africa. I mean, if she's like she's encountering racism everywhere, she can't go into a hotel without the the people working there uh, cocking up a, a, a plot to uh, <laughs> to remind her she's black by serving her by serving her fruit juice. <laughs> Which uh, I'm not even I'm not even sure what our, what our thinking was behind that. Like, oh is... my goodness! And the thing is, like, black currant wine has been I mean historically very it's very old and and all over Europe, you know. So she doesn't even know that though, does she? Did she? I'm just like I'm just wondering. Did she see the black and black currant and think it was directed at her? Yes. Like... Yes, she did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I wonder. Well, it's what like... What kind of what PhD do you know what she has? Obviously, they 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 just kind of let some of these grades slide. They look the other way for some of these people we know. Because if she's a real doctor, look out! I wouldn't want someone like this operating on me. Yeah, I've looked into it before. It's like she had a she came from Nigeria. And she had she had a degree in like you know Lagos University, which I'm sure is 
you know, you probably just bribe whoever's over the university. And <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I think I got an email offer from from the head of Lagos University, you know, offering to transfer money to my bank account. <laughs> those, yeah, exactly. Just you but, just uh, hold it for them, and then they'll give you ten million dollars. Right? <laughs> yeah. So she came, she came, she comes with the the degree from the University of Lagos, and then they're all coming out of one college as well. You know, the one you named earlier as well. There's like UCD, and it has like it has these MAs in equality studies. So I, I think what's going on is I think there's just like some woke lectures there that set up these uh set up these courses and then you know target women like these and just kind of hand them a phd for doing for compiling statistics on domestic abuse or something that's that's what it looks like to me I, none of these people have done any serious research when you look into it it's it is this kind of thing you know compiling statistics on race and stuff none of it's very impressive and it's it seems to me that they're they're just basically getting handed ma's and doctorates which uh, really calls into question the university system here as well. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know that she's just getting shit on and attention just for some diversity quota and she's female. I mean, we know this. <laughs> they do the same thing in America, too. Now, you did a couple good videos, too, recently about, uh, you know, idiot nationalism. So I kind of wanted to get into that and talk about, you know, why the right fails, uh, how conservatism, as you say, is moral impotence. So get into that a little bit. Uh, yeah, well, you see, that's that's another one of the things about nationalism in, in Ireland is it, like this has all happened so fast that we don't have, you know, I look at the, the US, the UK, uh, people like yourselves, and there's there's much more developed, coherent body of thought around nationalism. But because this has popped up in the last decade or two, this is, you know, this is so new and people are very reactive. And so what you see a lot is people tend to fall into sort of like based conservatism or civic nationalism or uh, sort of, you know, the kind of Zionist nationalism like anti-Islam. And it's because, you know, this is such a unique threat. This is such a new thing. People aren't sure how to deal with it. There's no, there isn't really yet a, a conception of like a white identity or a collective European identity. And so people are people are, are, are jumping to all sorts of different things to try and find an answer to it. And uh, what you find is that Zionism is is, is capitalizing on that as well, because I actually did a, an expose a while back. I couldn't leave it on YouTube. It's on BitChute. But it was I started looking into the uh, the Zionist influence on on some of the the conservative movement in Ireland, and it, it turns out it's pretty much every major conservative figure in Ireland has benefited from Israeli funding or has has visited Israel. Yep. I mean that it, the last uh, article you showed about the Ribena that's from a site called Gript, and that's basically the only website that reports on this kind of stuff. It's the only the only website that reports on immigration on any of these topics. Uh, but the guy that runs it is a, a total Zionist. And I asked him on Twitter, had he, had he benefited from Israeli hospitality? And he, he, started, <laughs> he said he was, he said he was proud. He was, he, it was public knowledge that he was, he was very proud of his, his multiple trips to Tel Aviv at the mm. invite of, of the Israeli justice minister, apparently. And it's the same with the, you know, there's the, the Catholic movement here, bizarrely, you know, there's a web, the newspaper, the Irish Catholic, and uh, the editors of that as well are, are like hyper Zionists and they've, you know, they get invited to Israel and pictures of them in the Israeli embassy. And uh, 
I'm sure you're familiar with that Al Jazeera documentary before that showed how how Israeli lobbies sort of try and take over these yes. movements, and that's definitely happened in Ireland. I also looked at the the youth wings of the establishment political parties, and the party that's currently in power. I mean, it's going to be out of power now, but the you know the centre right neoliberal Fine Gael party, they have like a, a committee of of people under their young Fine Gael branch, the youth members, you know, the national organizer all these positions and all of those in the past year have have taken trips to tel aviv mm -hmm. paid for by the israeli government so you know they're, they're getting their tentacles into these people very young some of them are only 18 19 college students and you know i i i was just i was doing research for this so i just googled their name and i google israel and for all of them it's like oh I'm so proud to be here in Tel Aviv and they're, they're writing these emotional bits about how much the Israeli people have suffered. And it's like <laughs> these same people will come into government and, you know, pass the bill to bring in another few hundred thousand African migrants mm. into their own country. It's just absurd. Yeah. Forget about how the Irish people are suffering, right? It, it's always the exactly. same, too. Uh, Ethno-nationalism is bad for Irish, but it's a wonderful, important thing. Of course, we must defend it for Israel, right? It's It's always the same thing. Yeah, it's unbelievable. And I mean, like, you, you you know, you wonder why they would even go to the length of trying to subvert a, a movement in a, a small country like Ireland. But, you know, this this uh, this whole battle obviously means a great deal to them on the, the, the international scale. And they don't they don't yeah. want any single country That's to to embrace ethno nationalism. But you, they don't, they, you know, like like the the containment strategy in the the sixties during the Cold War. You know that if a, if a country became communist, it could be a bad example. So you have to contain it wherever it may be, whether it's Southeast Asia or South America. And it seems like the, the Zionists operate a similar strategy. You know, they're they're on the lookout for any any populist websites popping up in Ireland, so they can offer them trips to Tel Aviv. <laughs> and it's always it's always the fear of the Holocaust, even though you know. <laughs> Even though it involved other players and not Ireland, it's still, it's always the Holocaust. Well, one know? of them, well, there was, there's this big Twitter page. It's like, uh, I forget, is it like Israeli, is it like uh, Jews, Jews for Ireland or like Israeli-Irish Alliance or something? And like, I just retweeted them and it's like their bio is like, uh, uh, we stand for uh, Holocaust education, uh <sighs> advocacy for Israel, Israel's right to exist, all this stuff. And it's like, you know, that's that's a really interesting set of, of Irish interests. You have yeah, to, you exactly. Know. It's like this paragraph long list of, you know, Israel's <laughs> enemies must be destroyed. And it's like, <laughs> Just replace that with Irish and see how that works. Here, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I fixed it for you. Yeah, you were telling me also uh, before we were recording about Alan Shatter. <laughs> tell yeah. us tell us about him because that's the beginning of a lot of the immigration woes happened to coincide with this guy who looks like a used car salesman. Well, yeah, there's a there's a quote in uh, Ulysses by James Joyce, obviously a very famous literary work from here. And uh, one, one of the characters says, well, he's very proud, you know, he's like, well, Ireland, Ireland never treated the, the Jews bad. And the other character says, well, that's because we never let them in. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, Alan Shatter is uh, is an interesting case. Ireland might be the, the one country with like with with to a population of like two Jews and a Jewish problem. <laughs> but uh, yeah, there's only, I think there's only 2000 Jews in Ireland. Um, and Alan Shatter was in Fine Gael for a long time. Now, for a long time, the only thing he was known for was writing a really smutty novel in the, I think it was the 80s at a time when 
Ireland is very conservative and he wrote this really weird uh, smutty novel about a politician like fucking all his secretaries. It was very, everyone thought it was very nice. odd. And then the next time he was seen in public life really was when this party came into government after the economic collapse. And, you know, it's quite interesting uh, for all the, the government positions available. The cabinet is 15 ministers and, uh, you know, as a senior member of government, he has his, his selection of ministerial roles. And for some reason, he was very keen to take the position as Minister for Justice. Now, Minister for Justice, you know, Ireland's a small neutral country, but it's 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 effectively over the, the military and arms, who we buy arms for whatnot, and also immigration. And his record as 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 Minister for Justice, you know, even if you read his Wikipedia, they say his his record is is two things: one that he he changed the the immigration process substantially, and the other was his hardcore support for Israel. And uh, he had this tendency of of labeling popular politicians as anti-Semites, and uh, you know, really using the term sort of viciously and against like left-wing activists, anti-racist activists. And but he was he was publicly smearing them as as anti-Semites. And no one ever called him a Jew. No one ever pointed out that he was Jewish. That was completely irrelevant. But uh, you know, suddenly Ireland, a neutral country, was buying twelve million euros of arms with Israel and signing arms mm. deals with. Uh, with the Israeli state at a time when, you know, there was conflicts with Gaza going on, there was conflicts with Lebanon. He was always a great advocate for Israel. I think he lived in a, a kibbutz when he was younger, actually. Um, but yeah, his main, his main record is immigration. And you have to think as well, uh, you know, this, you know, part of the immigration to Ireland could be blamed on the economy and part of it could be blamed on the EU. But not in this case, because he doubled immigration in 2011 from the year previously. And that was a time when our economy was absolutely tanked. It was absolutely on the rocks. We were undergoing austerity every year to try and uh, fix a massive deficit of billions of euros. Um, we had an unemployment rate that was well over 10 percent, close to 15 percent. And in 2011, you know, he's doubling immigration and it's not EU migrants either. Most of the migrants he signed off on would be from places like uh, Nigeria, uh, Pakistan, these places. So this was clearly politically motivated. He also changed the rules around refugees. So, you know, again, another one of his legacies was that we started taking far more uh, refugees, especially Syrian refugees. And so what we've seen the last few years where they're settling refugees in places of important cultural heritage places like the Connemara, places like the Gwaeltucht areas, Irish speaking areas, small towns and villages in rural Ireland and populating them with uh, 200, 300, you know, Syrian refugees moving yeah, into crazy. a village of the same size. And, the, you know, this is all this is all from Shadow's record. He changed all the processes around these things. He changed the naturalization process. So many of the immigrants living here could get citizenship far easier. And he introduced these elaborate citizenship ceremonies that has now become a big thing that they show on the news every every year where they show the, these halls full of, of brown and black people and they're they're being made Irish, you know, they're they're Irish now. <laughs> and uh, it interviews them afterwards about how happy they are to, to be Irish now. You know, the day before they weren't Irish and then today they are Irish and uh, they're really happy about that. 
But uh, you don't even have you don't even have to show up to these events. <laughs> if you if you don't show up to your your naturalization ceremony, they'll just send you your Irishness in the post. So it's like, <laughs> Here's your Irish identity. Here yeah. you go. Yeah, it's like you know, like if you're if you're unemployed, like you have to go for your your meeting every so often to see you know your like officer to see if you're still looking for a job or else they'll stop giving you money. Yeah. But if it's like to become a citizen of Ireland, if you don't show up, they'll just post it to you. So <laughs> <laughs> Alan Shatter reminds me of it's like every country you learn when you learn the history of a particular nation all has their heart seller act if you know what I mean and so mm-hmm. Alan Shatter here we go again you know and there's always a route that you can go to and you know I'm sure yeah. Alan Shatter is very much Israel first I'm sure he's not talking about refugees and, oh, yeah. and Africans coming into Israel right you probably never heard him talk about that <laughs> yeah I mean the only time you see him now he's retired but the only time you see him well, he's doing two things. He's working for uh, an NGO, uh, which is an Israeli. It's like the Israeli Red Cross. He's on the board of that, lobbying for that. And then the other thing he does is he comes on TV every so often if it's an issue around Israel and he calls uh, the person disagreeing with him. An Anti-Semite. Yeah. But again, it's, it's, never, it's, it's never mentioned that he's a Jew. There'll be mm-hmm. someone on that's campaigning for Palestine and Shatter will come on and just attack them and abuse them and call them anti-Semitic and say that they're biased because of their anti-Semitism, but no one will, will mention the fact that he's Jewish. So It's, I mean, in, it's it in his mind all the time, and they know that they can use it as a trick. I mean, that's that's all they have to do is shout. I mean, we get that in America all the time. Just shout anti-Semite. Oh, okay. Then, then you don't have to explain anymore, right? It's just yeah. that's what they do. Know, but that's the thing. When you don't have a substantial population of Jews, no one is used to encountering that. No one knows how to deal with that. No one's going to point out that, well, you have a dog in this fight, you know, to use the, the Mel Gibson phrase. But I mean, <laughs> that shows like that this was not sort of inevitable, an inevitable process of economic development or something, because even when we had the booming economy in the early 2000s, there was substantial immigration. But basically, when the economy collapsed, many of those immigrants left. And, you know, the, the country really was on the rocks in the, the late noughties. And it was still uh, overwhelmingly Irish. And it was only really around, you know, 2011, 12, 13, that you really started to notice the changes. And that was the time when our economy was tanked. And so it was purely just, the you know, the will of this one man shattered that was determined to change the the makeup of the the country that he was brought up in uh but there's another one you know there's a there's a prominent academic in in trinity college called ronit lenton and uh maybe you can you can get some i think the occidental observer covered her as well and she she explicitly says that her her goal in life is to to deconstruct the irish identity and to to (laughs) destroy destroy whiteness and destroy the Irish identity uh, using immigration. Wow. Uh, she says, actually, I have the quote here. She says, I propose an interrogation of how the Irish nation can become other than white, Christian and settled by privileging the voices of the racialized and subverting state immigration, but also integration policies. So, you know, she's a, she's a prominent academic. And, you know, those are pretty much the only two well-known Jews in Ireland like I, I can't I can't think of, of anyone else as I said there's only like 2,000 in Ireland but those those are the, the prominent ones those are the public ones and we're seeing and look the, at what they're saying seeing, and doing uh, yeah exactly seeing the consequence yeah. of their actions now and you know for two people they've had they've had quite an impact you know one of them 
uh, got into Minister for Justice and completely changed the demographic outlook. And another one is a, is one of the most prominent academics. Now, does this, the female, what's her name again, Ronan, does she ever get challenged? Ronan Lenton. Does she ever get challenged? Do people ever say, hey, wait a minute here? Come back, no, fire you, back. You, at you don't see you don't see her in the the public space so much on TV or whatnot. But I think her her influence has been has been much more in in the line of you know the sort of the NGOs and the change in sort mm-hmm. of discussion now, where suddenly you know whiteness and Irish whiteness is being discussed, and she's had a, you know she's had an influence on the academic side of things and the kind of brainwashing that's coming out of the university system now. It's amazing. It's like Irish people are white. Swedes mm-hmm. are white. Germans are white. I know there's a lot of people in Europe, and I always say this too, you know, like in America, they just say, oh, these white nationalists. Well, in Europe, it's very diverse. You can't just say white. It's, it's an offense, you know, because Germans are so different than Irish, than Swedes, and, and so on. Would you agree with that? Yeah, definitely. And that's another thing, you know, they'll they'll use against you because they'll say, well, uh, you know, that's one that they, they like to use is, oh, well, the Irish weren't considered white. And so, you know, race is such a, of course, it's, uh, you know, it's of course, the, the guy that wrote, the guy that wrote that was Noel Ignatiev as well. The oh, book, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. How the Irish became white. But I think we all know he, di- he died from uh, basically constipation. He was full of his own shit. It's true story. <laughs> true story. This happened uh, just last year. <laughs> well, very fitting. <laughs> but yeah, you know they they always play they always play these sort of linguistic games because if a, if a, an Irish person wants to assert Irish nationalism, which is something that wasn't controversial at all here, even recently, you know, I mean, up until up until ten years ago, all of the prominent parties had on their websites that there were Irish nationalist parties because that was like the starting point in Irish politics. I mean, every every political party essentially came out of the original Sinn Féin, which was the party that fought a, a violent war of independence against the British Empire. And you couldn't enter politics in Ireland unless you said you were a nationalist and you wanted a united 32-county republic. Mm. That was like a, prere- a prerequisite. Mm. Um, and now, now that's completely changed. Now, if you but now if you say you're a nationalist, they'll call you a white supremacist, and you're a white <laughs> nationalist. You're not an Irish nationalist. You're a white nationalist. But then they'll, uh, you know, they'll they'll do it the opposite way. Then they'll they'll change the the goalposts again. And uh, if it's if it's opposition to immigration or something, they'll say, well, well, the Irish weren't white anyway. Exactly. So you know, you're at once you're at once a white nationalist and yeah. a, a non-white, depending on what. What yeah. narrative they need. And we know all these tricks. We know it's all based on lies. And we know their ultimate goal is to replace European people everywhere that they are. <laughs> I mean, the, I don't know how people could be blind to that now. And they say it right to your face. They say it out in the open. It's not some conspiracy theory. We can measure it. We can see it. We can hear them talking about it. So, you know, I was looking at that footage earlier. Uh, we did a little piece about that little Irish town there. Was it like 300 people or something? They were protesting because they were bringing in all these refugees that was going to basically make them a minority in their own town overnight yeah it was 700 people march basically the whole town was out there marching saying no we can't take in these so-called refugees now what do you think is going to be i know this is a big question but the future of ireland um hmm, yeah it's uh you know it's hard not to be it's hard not to be blackpilled with some of this sometimes 
Um, I actually, I have a friend that lives lives around there, and he was he was saying he did find it kind of funny, like the the idea that because that's a really popular spot for tourism because th- that town Uchtdraird is basically like the gateway into Connemara. It's like you have to pass through there to go into Connemara, which is obviously a really popular tourist spot. And he was just laughing at the prospect that like there'll be these American boomers going on a, a trip to Ireland. <laughs> And they'll they'll go out to like really rural Connemara, like Irish speaking west of Ireland, onto the coast as far as you can go. And like they'll pull up at this town and it'll just be full of Syrians. Yeah. <laughs> or Africans. And they'll be like, wait, is that what they or meant Africans, by black yeah. Irish? No, that's not what they meant by black. <laughs> yeah. I, I knew the Irish weren't white, but this is a bit fair. <laughs> yeah. I mean every and everyone knows it. You know, people might not say it, but come on. Like everyone knows that lady that was talking, that African. Like yeah. you're you're never going to be Irish. I would never be taken seriously as being Irish. It seems like it only works for these non-European people that are oh, of course, we can't question, of course they're Irish. You know, but if I came there's a Slav and, and became a Irish citizen, would I be considered Irish? No one would no one would take that seriously, you know? It's amazing. Yeah. In ter- but in terms of the future, I mean, this is the problem is that when you're when you're a country as small as Ireland, I mean, the thing about globalism is your your options become really limited because we're so there's no prospect of, of leaving the EU or anything like that. I mean, the, we have the highest approval rating of the EU and because we're so tied to this multinational, multicultural system. It'll take so many years to undergo a, a decoupling process. And this is why like a having a running your economy and the, the interests of the nation rather than the other way around is, is so important because, you know, had we, had we, when we had money, you know, invested in capital spending programs and infrastructure in better health service, if we'd invested in these things, we'd at least have some kind of base, you know, were we ever to kind of go alone or become less reliant to these multinationals. But because we've had just a complete consensus on neoliberalism, and, you know, we're so completely tied to the system now that they've made it that we're so tied up to it that it's almost impossible to, to extricate ourselves from it. So I think, you know, I think there will be definitely a backlash. We always tend to be a bit behind uh, the rest of Europe. Uh, but there is, I do think there's a, a waking up going on. It hasn't translated to the, the ballot box yet, but, you know, that election was a kind of a snap election. But there's a really rising populist movement. There's definitely a, a rising online movement and political discussion online is, is dominated by nationalism. I know that's often the case generally, but especially in Ireland, this seems to be gaining serious momentum the last couple of years. So I do think there'll be a backlash, but at the same time, I kind of think that any country as small as Ireland and this probably even goes for some of the, the countries in the East, you know, I know people get very excited about Hungary and Poland in these countries. But I kind of think unless uh, unless Europe as a whole is reoriented, that this process is going to continue in one form or another and that it will take some some bigger shift uh, for for these these smaller countries to maintain their identity. Absolutely. You know, I, I'm holding out because I know the fu- the future, the R word repatriation that must be in Europe's future. I mean, it, it just has to happen. And you know what? Europe has been through all kinds of wars and fights and boundary disputes and will probably have something like that happen again. But 
So I have one more question for you because it was actually uh, someone who listens to your videos when I said that I was going to have you on. They said, yeah, ask him why he's quoting some Frankfurt School Marxist like Herbert Marcuse. You know, I haven't actually heard you do this. I haven't actually listened to all your videos, so I don't know what context. But what do you want to say to that guy? <laughs> Oy vey, I've been out. <laughs> the, thir the third Irish Jew. <laughs> <laughs> well, this actually kind of gets into the last point, which is that, uh, you know, again, from an Irish perspective, all of these cultural shifts have happened with economic liberalism and this massive shift in consciousness has coincided, you know, in, in a lot of countries, the left gets to blame. But in Ireland, we haven't had a prominent left wing movement in government. And so this completely falls on centre right neoliberal uh, political parties. And so you see that. A lot of the stuff we tend to attack as cultural Marxism oftentimes is is more cultural neoliberalism. You know, you see you see the pictures of the, the pride parade now and they're, they're carrying banners of like investment banks. Uh, <laughs> and so I think I think actually that the left, if they were to actually fulfill the role, if 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 the you know, the old school left was to still be the old school left, they'd look at things like uh, LGBT lobby and transgenderism and all this stuff. And this is pure ideology. And from from that materialist Marxist perspective, they should be looking at things like, yeah, the protesters you see there with the their trans flags. And they're in that case, they're protesting outside Google against free speech. So that was when Gemma O'Doherty, I believe, had her, her YouTube shut down. And so people it's like, well, the Google headquarters are in Dublin. Let's go and protest this. And these counter protesters showed up to demand basically that uh, their capitalist overlords in uh, Google uh, censorship people more. Yeah. So this is like, you know, the absolute state of the modern left. They're standing outside uh, that big imposing building, the Google HQ, and they're they're begging their, their capitalist overlords <laughs> to do more censorship and be more tyrannical. So, you know, if if there was to be if leftists were to be honest and they were to follow the material analysis to its conclusion, they wouldn't be supporting these big that, corporations. Yeah, they'd see that LGBT and all this stuff was basically, you know, used by the elite to further their own interests because these people become a subservient class that are completely reliant on liberal orthodoxy and governing ideology to maintain their existence. And so in that sense, you know, they're they're perfect. They're perfect pawns for that. And, you know, another thing as well about the the materialist leftist analysis is there's absolutely no reason uh, in theory why that would not be why that would not be racial. I mean, if you're to if you're to be an objective leftist and to look at things structurally and to look at the material base of ideology, there's no reason why uh, game theory and ethnic competition would not be a factor you'd analyze in that. And I mean, some of the things Marx and Engels said on race would certainly be be taboo today. So I, I mean, I'm not definitely not I'm not a Marxist or a leftist, but I, I'd like to see there are elements emerging of a genuine left. If a genuine left, something like uh, the kind of people that were maybe in labor in the 70s, people like George Galloway, who started a new workers party in Britain that's opposed to mass immigration, if a genuine left emerged, I think they'd find that they agree with more. Uh, they agree with us on more stuff than they'd maybe be comfortable with. And, uh, you know, if if some people in the left that consider themselves to be these great radicals or rebels realized 
that all of this stuff, all of this stuff is just a form of liberalism. All of this is cultural neoliberalism. And it's basically a tool used to control you. You know, as E. Michael Jones says, you know, don't ask for higher wages, just go to the gay disco. <laughs> uh, then, you know, that's something that you, that's at least something we could we could unite on rather than what passes for the left now, which is just defenders of pause and defenders of, of cultural neoliberalism. I mean, this thing about that you can choose your identity this lines up quite quite well with a you know a neoliberal capitalist ethic where everything can be purchased everything can be consumed everything can be turned into raw data everything can be traded on the the free market and uh, you know they don't want there to be to be identities that aren't for sale you know being a swede is is not something that can be bought you know being an irish person even if they send you your certificate in the post is not something that can be bought and that's that's the problem for capitalists. That's the problem for for neoliberalism is that when people are still attached to these uh, uh, these identities that they're born with, these things matter to people more than the movies they watch or the products they consume, and it makes them less malleable to advertisement and uh, to falling into that consumption matrix. And you, you find that immigrants tend to make much better consumers for for the elite. You know, you find that first generation immigrants I've noticed are, are very much more enamored with consumerism and tend to spend their money on much more junk. And uh, I think white people in a sense were becoming kind of jaded with consumerism and there's much more of a, a move towards young people sort of looking for new forms of authenticity or whatever. But immigration provides a, a nice solution to that. Just keep filling the, the countries with more consumers that are that are much more malleable to uh, to advertisement and to capitalism. OK, that makes sense. Now, when you put it in perspective like that, and I will say even like old school communists like Bernie Sanders, remember, he also used to actually care about the worker, uh, talked about why immigration was was bad for the worker. You know, a lot of old school communists uh, also in, in Russia, not defending them, hate these people, but, uh, you know, they weren't gay friendly and all those things, you know. So, yeah, hardline communists, uh, maybe even some of the old Marxists are, are different than what we have today. But, of course, when people say cultural Marxism, I think they think of uh, Frankfurt School, right? Herbert Mercusa and his other uh, fellow Semitic buddies there who really created the whole fascist Nazi panic. You know, everything's racism and homophobia and xenophobia and all these ideas just basically infected themselves into the American university after uh, World War II. So I think that's why the term cultural Marxism is really kind of caught on. I do like the term, though. I do think it is pretty fitting. Yeah, but I get no, where you're coming it's, from. It's it's very it's very useful and it is it is quite it is quite impressive, really. That's one thing that the right has kind of uh, memed into mainstream discourse. You know, when you see people like Jordan Peterson and even on you know mainstream news discussions, this is a, a popular term now. So. It, that I think that does show the the power that the alt right has had through the, the internet and stuff. That you even watch mainstream uh, panel discussions in Ireland or the UK, and cultural Marxism is now yeah. a term that's regularly used. Which is, I think that's 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 one uh, big victory of the right the last few years. So tell us about your channel and anything else that you have going on. And uh, you're a bright young man, so I have to ask. I have to put this out there. Are you still single? Uh, yes, yes. Okay, all right, <laughs> ladies, I'll put that out there if you're in Ireland or somewhere in Europe. So tell us about your channel and what you have going on. Uh, yeah, so you can subscribe to me on YouTube, uh, Keith Woods, uh, Twitter, however long I have that, Keith Woods YT is my username. Uh, I have some stuff planned with the channel, actually. I've been, I'm planning on uh, 
taking an interview life. I'm gonna go to the universities. I'm gonna I'm gonna ask some of the students a few questions. I have something entertaining planned, so that they posted for that. Yeah, that that should be juicy. Yeah, we need more of that kind of stuff. Well, you're doing a great job. You're well spoken. You're bright. So you know, keep it up. We need more of you out there, definitely. So thank you so much for coming on too. Thank you. Good to be here. I love that new, fresh, intelligent, and nationalist content creators keep popping up. And there's so many more who think about these things at home that don't create channels and discuss it publicly. We are out there and this is catching on. Ireland didn't have to think about their Irish identity because they were engulfed in it all the time. But now as enemies are trying to destroy it, they have to think about it, they have to know it, and they have to protect it. Many thanks to Red Ice members who make our content possible. Despite massive bans and censorship, we are here because of your continued support. Much love, until next time. On October 17th, YouTube deleted our channel Red Ice TV, and a week later, Red Ice Media, our backup. We had no strikes at the time on either. YouTube never sent us an email, they did not get back to us regarding our appeal, and despite thousands of people writing Team YouTube, there has been zero communication from them after we were thrown off the video publisher's website. Luckily, nothing has been lost. Everything is still available on redice.tv and redicemembers.com together with all our members' exclusive content. Make sure you get a subscription and support us. A lot of our recent videos and shows were automatically backed up on our BitChute channel. Subscribe to us there, bitchute.com forward slash redicetv. More recent shows are embedded via BitChute on redice.tv and we have always hosted our own MP3s on the website, the podcast version of the show. We have RSS feeds both for the radio show, the interviews, and a separate RSS feed for the videos posted on our website. Subscribe to both of these feeds to get the latest content, and this is a great way of getting a notification as well as soon as new shows and videos are available. We are in the process of uploading older shows to our BitChute channel now. We will go back and update shows on redice.tv that previously was linked back to our now censored YouTube channel. Subscribe to our BitChute channel, bitchute.com slash TV. We are rebuilding our subscriber base with an already large audience over there. Join the 22,000 that have already subscribed to our BitChute channel. We are also uploading all our videos to our Facebook page, facebook.com slash creations. Just search for Red Ice on Facebook. When we live stream, we multi-stream both to Twitter and Facebook, but more importantly, dlive.tv slash TV. Get the DLive app, follow us there, and you'll get notifications when we go live. They have Super Chats incorporated on the platform as well. Thousands have joined us on DLive already, and that's a great option for live streaming. If you want notifications for any of our content, make sure you join our Telegram group. Go to t.me forward slash TV and enable notifications. You can get the Telegram app for your phone or your computer. It's nice and secure as well. 
Notifications goes on Telegram every time something new is available from Red Ice or other important updates that we have. In addition, make sure that you follow us on twitter.com slash TV, gab.com slash TV, minds.com slash TV, and instagram.com slash media. Help spread the word about our videos and shows share links, post it in comments, tell friends, family, co-workers. We lost access to 333,000 subscribers on YouTube, but we'll rebuild the audience on new and better platforms that don't censor and accepts politically diverse opinions. YouTube will be outcompeted by platforms that simply can uphold US law, recognize the First Amendment, but also the United Nations Declaration of Human Rights. The Supreme Court already ruled that there is no so-called hate speech exception to the First Amendment. Publishers like YouTube, Facebook, Twitter and Google use the hate speech excuse, this clause, to silence dissident political views that they don't agree with since they are biased political publishers that meddle in the election process and admittedly now has shown through leaked footage and documents that they want to sway public opinion by controlling what speech they allow or don't allow on their websites, even though they are granted special protection under the Communications Decency Act, Section 230, by the United States government. This means they should not be allowed to operate as a publisher like they do now. They should be a neutral platform, but time and time again, we have seen that they are not. All we ask is that these companies uphold United States law. Don't break the law by calling for violence, which we never did. And then these publishers should accept everything else that is protected under the First Amendment, since they are based in and were founded in the United States of America. They also receive corporate welfare, massive subsidies from the US government. This is taxpayer money, in other words considering their special protection status granted to them by the government under Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, they should recognize free speech. And the US Supreme Court have already ruled that so-called hate speech is free speech. Redice.tv, redicemembers.com. Visit our websites. A lot of great new updates in the work for both websites. Thank you for watching and thank you for your support.